This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Please take your Bibles and turn with me to Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8. You'll notice that we're jumping from Matthew 4 to Matthew chapter 8, as tempting as it was to go on into Matthew 5 and preach through the Sermon on the Mount again. I decided not to. Uh, We had studied, of course, you remember, last year. And so remembering everything that we talked about, I'm just going to assume you're your, your exhaustive knowledge of Matthew 5, 6, and 7, uh, having been through the series on those chapters, and we'll move into chapter 8, verses 1 through 17. Hear the word of God. When he came down from the mountain, and you'll recall that Jesus had gone up on the mountain, and therefore it was the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. When he entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I, too, am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she rose and began to serve him. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word, and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for your scriptures and for this portion of it this morning. We ask for your grace as we study it. Father, we pray you would stir our hearts to praise you and worship you for your great power and for your great grace. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We have a saying here in the United States, I think particularly, I don't know if this is a familiar expression in Korea or not. There's a new sheriff in town. It derives from the American West, particularly, although I don't know if it was ever said, except in Westerns and movies, 
but we know what it means. There's a new sheriff in town. What it means is that uh, someone new has come and the old order is in for it. The old order, maybe with a uh, sheriff who was on the take, uh, a uh, town where graft and corruption uh, abounded, uh, is now threatened because a new sheriff has come, someone with integrity, someone who's going to crack down on the lawlessness and introduce a new order. And uh, those who are crooked and dishonest in their ways are served notice that their time is limited, their time is short. Well, as we come to the Gospels uh, and to Jesus' ministry, we really could say there's a new sheriff in town. Now, don't press the analogy too much because it breaks down very quickly. In many ways, is a completely inadequate analogy, except in this one point. That now that Jesus has come on the scene, nothing will ever be the same again. And Satan is served notice that his realm And his power and his way of doing things are now under siege and his time is short. As we've been studying the gospel, you'll recall in chapter four that it ends with a summary. Uh, Chapter four, verses 23 through 25, just in, in summary form, describes Jesus' ministry of preaching the gospel, teaching in the synagogues. And his ministry of healing, those with these various afflictions that Matthew lists for us there, those possessed by demons, those ill with epilepsy, those suffering from paralysis, and he healed them. And, of course, great crowds came uh, to experience Jesus' healing, to hear his teaching, and simply to witness this, this big thing that was going on there in their midst. And so... Matthew fleshes out what he summarizes there, both Jesus' teaching and the miraculous works that Jesus did. The teaching of the kingdom is summarized for us in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Jesus speaks there of the new life of the kingdom. Those who are poor in spirit, those who mourn their sins, those who have entrusted themselves in faith to the Messiah. It speaks of that new way of living that comes out of that transformed heart. Jesus speaks of the true intent of the law of Moses, which governs certainly our outward actions, both what we are to do, what we're not to do. But Jesus explains and makes clear that God is concerned not only with outward behavior, certainly that, but even with the heart, uh, that we can violate the Ten Commandments even by the attitudes of our heart. And so Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, encapsulates the, the teaching, the principles uh, of God's grace in dealing with our sin and how we are to live as those who have experienced his grace. But that's not all that Jesus did. Matthew summarized there in, in, in chapter 4 of his healing ministry, of actually helping people in their physical needs as well as addressing their spiritual needs. And we said last time that something of a one-two punch in Jesus' own ministry and that of the disciples. We saw Peter uh, in his healing of Tabitha, of Dorcas, that continued in their ministry and should be true of every Christian church today, ministering both in word and in deed. And we see that in Jesus' ministry. Now, the confession, or rather the uh, shorter catechism, says it speaks of uh, the estate or the condition into which we fell. What is that? Into what estate did the fall bring mankind? Well, it says that the fall brought mankind into an estate or a condition of sin and misery. 
We tend to be, as evangelicals, much more familiar with the sin side of that equation and Jesus dying for our sin and his judicial uh, suffering and death on our behalf and the Father's imputing or crediting to us the righteousness of God, of Christ, even as he imputed or credited or even debited, if we would put it that way, our sin to Jesus on the cross. But there's also the whole uh, other side of the equation of our misery in living in this fallen world that is affected by sin. Uh, The Catechism says of the misery into which we fell that all mankind, by their fall, lost communion with God and are under his wrath and curse, and so made liable to all miseries in this life, to death itself, and to the pain of hell forever. Jesus came to alleviate sin, absolutely. But he also came, and as part of that, to alleviate human misery and suffering. And we see that in these miracles that he did. These miracles point to Jesus as the Messiah. Jesus refused to perform miracles to serve himself or simply to create a spectacle, but rather pointing to who he was as the Messiah. It's worth noting in Matthew's Gospel that there are ten healing miracles before Peter's confession of Jesus as the Messiah at Caesarea Philippi in Matthew 16. After that confession, there's only one. And much more teaching to his disciples about Jesus' coming suffering and his death as he prepares his disciples for what lay ahead. So it's almost as if once Peter makes that confession, representing the disciples, representing Jesus' followers, then Jesus' ministry, then his teaching focuses on his suffering and death. But up to that point, the miracles demonstrate that this is the Messiah who was to come. And in the apostles' ministry in Acts, uh, again, not for show, but to validate their authority, their position as spokesman for Christ in establishing the New Testament church. Well, let's look then at these three particular miracles that Jesus does that both point to him as the Messiah and also are an expression of the kingdom, not so much in dealing with the the guilt of sin, but in alleviating the misery of sin. The first miracle that Jesus does, it says that he came down from the mountain, uh, great crowds were there, and a leper comes to Jesus and kneels before him, and he says, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Now, this is a pretty astounding event in and of itself. Uh, in Leviticus, the, the lepers, those who had leprosy, and it's difficult to determine exactly what's meant by that term, whether it was uh, what we know today as Hansen's disease, leprosy formally, or some sort of skin condition, some sort of affliction other than what we think of formally and medically as leprosy. Um, but they were to be outside the camp. And part of that was for health reasons, so others would not be affected. Part of that was also for ritual or ceremonial reasons, that by this affliction they were seen as uh, ceremonially unclean and were placed outside the camp. Uh, well, this man comes directly up to Jesus and may be violating uh, some some guidelines or some barriers there. He comes directly up to Jesus and he kneels before him. He says, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Now, it took a lot of faith to do that, not knowing if he would face rejection, not knowing what Jesus would do, but he was confident based on what he had heard and what he had seen that Jesus could help him. And so he kneels before Jesus and says, Lord, if you are willing to do it, you can make me clean. By the way, that's a great uh, posture for prayer in our day, anytime we come to the Lord You know, on the one hand, recognizing that he can do anything that he purposes to do in accord with his own character. But we always come, if not spoken, at least with the attitude, Lord, if you're willing, if this is your will, 
You know, I, I, I recognize your power to do it, but I don't know if it's your will to do it, and I submit to that. So that's his posture, kneeling before the Lord. And Jesus does something amazing. And I'm not talking about when he says, be clean. Jesus reaches out and he touches this man. That may have been the first time that man had, had felt the touch of another human being in a very long time. Because the lepers were outcasts. They were, they were untouchable. They were shunned. They were kept at a distance. And in fact, not only the leper, but every one of these cases, as we'll see, we're dealing with someone who in some way is an outcast from society, is on a lower rung of society. Well, Jesus reaches out and he touches this man. And if there's anything that shocked the people more than this leper's initial request, it was that Jesus was willing to touch this leper. Now, for others, perhaps for sanitary reasons and for ritual reasons, they were not to touch the leper. But you see, Jesus was not going to be contaminated by this man. He wasn't afraid of that, and certainly ritually, Jesus was not himself being defiled, but communicated cleansing and wholeness to this man through his touch. And he says to the man, I am willing to be clean. And immediately we read, the leprosy left. And Jesus says, see that you say nothing to anyone. Why the quiet? Well, that would be so contrary to someone who's been healed. You want to go out and say what's happened. Well, Jesus says, don't, don't talk about this. Keep this quiet. And in fact, when people did go out and talk, it tended to hinder Jesus' ministry. Jesus, again, wasn't trying to put on a show. But he says, go and show yourself to the priest, which is what we read earlier in Leviticus, and offer the gift that Moses commanded, the offering there that we read about, for a proof to them. Actually, the testimony would come when the man showed himself to the priest and was declared healed was declared clean and allowed back inside, was, was received back into society. That would be the testimony. That would be the witness. That would be the proof uh, that, in fact, Jesus had healed this man. And they may well have been familiar with the man anyway, uh, since someone with this condition was to be inspected by the priest. They regulated their being put outside society and their being declared clean to be brought back into society. That's the first miracle that Jesus did. The second miracle that he did here is, uh, has to do with this Roman centurion. When Jesus came back into Capernaum, we read a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him. And he says, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. Now, Matthew in chapter 4 had mentioned Jesus healing those who were paralyzed, and this seems to be a particular instance of that. Uh, with a centurion, or in the other Gospels, perhaps his servants representing him, came and spoke with Jesus and asked for his help. Now, it's interesting to note that throughout Scripture, Roman centurions are portrayed positively. They, they you know, we'll look at another instance in just a moment, but typically, and in, even in Acts, in, in Paul's interactions with the Romans, uh, the Roman government, the Roman centurions, acted to protect Paul. And in fact, some have argued one of Luke's purposes in the book of Acts is to demonstrate that Rome had accepted Christianity and protected it. Paul himself had come under the protection of Roman law. Well, here the centurion asked for Jesus' help. And uh, verse 8, the centurion replied when Jesus said, I will come and heal him. The centurion says in verse 8, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. Now, this centurion understood chain of command. Uh, in, in, in that day, 
for someone to violate the command of a centurion was to violate the word of the emperor himself. It was to violate Rome in its power, in its might, in its majesty. And as this emperor stood under the authority of the military leaders above him and ultimately under the emperor himself, he recognized that those under him, when he spoke the word, went and did what he commanded. And he recognizes in Jesus a certain authority, certain power, that even as Jesus was here under the direction of his Father in heaven, and Jesus did, obviously in his deity, was, was equal with the Father in terms of his being, but had subordinated himself to the Father in terms of his mission of redemption uh, under the Father's authority. So Jesus could command even illness, even the effects of sin, even the doings of Satan, and the effects of the fall, and these things would happen. And so he says, Lord, you don't even need to come. You just need to say the word. Because like you, I'm a man under authority, and I have those under authority, under my authority, and I say the word, and they do this or that. So Jesus, you do, I'm not worthy to have you visit my home. Just, just speak it, and it will be done. Now, that's remarkable. Because to this point, we have no record that Jesus had done that. In fact, just prior to this, he'd actually been in close proximity to the man. It, it touched him. Did Jesus have to touch someone to heal them? Well, he certainly did sometimes in other occasions uh, than the one we just looked at. But this centurion recognized that Jesus didn't, not only didn't have to touch, he did not even have to be in close proximity. And that same divine voice that spoke a universe into existence could merely say the word and his servant would be freed to move and freed to walk. And when Jesus hears that in verse 10, he's amazed. It says he marveled. That that same word occurs in Mark chapter 6, verse 6, where Jesus marveled at unbelief. Uh, Here he he marvels, he's amazed at the the bold, confident faith of this Roman officer in Jesus' power to heal. And he says something rather striking in verse 10. Truly I tell you, uh, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. Now that's kind of an indictment against Israel because, after all, they had the Old Testament. Their ancestors, ancestors were the ones who experienced the, uh, the, the exodus and to whom the prophets spoke, who'd received the law of God and all of this. And Jesus could say of this, this Gentile centurion, I haven't found that his, his equal faith in, in all Israel, this confidence in Jesus' power. Uh, unfortunately, as we'll see, all too often Jesus found precisely the opposite, uh, the opposite a uh, harsh unbelief and rejection. But verse 11, he says, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. Again, we see this played out in the New Testament. Uh, Jesus is saying there are going to be people coming from all over who will participate in the messianic banquet, the wedding supper of the Lamb. Gentiles coming from east and west, coming from all over the place. While there are those even who are sons of the kingdom, even those in Israel, even the ethnic descendants of Abraham, who will find themselves bluntly in hell, cast out because of their unbelief. Now, praise God, there are certainly among those, those among the Jews who believed Peter included, Paul included, John, James, others, certainly many Jewish believers in that day and in our own. 
But Jesus is right there beginning to confront this mentality that was so deeply entrenched that we're sons of Abraham and we're okay with God. It wasn't physical descent. It was a matter of faith. You share the faith of Abraham. Paul could write in Romans 2 that a Jew is not one outwardly, but someone who's experienced circumcision of the heart, who's in covenant with God in, in the heart, not just by outward association. Romans 4, Paul would talk about how it's those of the faith of Abraham, both Jew and Gentile alike, who are the heirs of the promises, not just those of the flesh of Abraham by automatic uh, descent. And that's what Jesus is saying here, even as he commends this centurion. Now, this sort of foreshadows what happens in Acts. I mentioned we'd look at one other centurion. Well, Acts chapter 10, Cornelius. Uh, as Cornelius and his family and those with him believed uh, the gospel and God gave them the Holy Spirit. And, of course, Peter gets uh, interrogated about this association with Gentiles when he arrives back and reports back in Jerusalem. But their response after Peter explains is found in Acts verse uh, chapter 11, verse 18. They heard these things, they fell silent, they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also... God has granted repentance that leads to life. And Jesus is speaking of that here. That there will be many Gentiles who will come into the kingdom and be there on that day at the Messianic uh, celebratory feast. And Jesus speaks of that. And as we said, Matthew always keeps an eye out for that greater expansion of the gospel to the Gentiles that we see fulfilled in the book of Acts. And so he says in verse 13 to the centurion, Go. Let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Again, an outcast. Uh, it's certainly from the Jewish perspective, from the Jerusalem perspective. Here was this Gentile uh, who, and not only a Gentile, but a representative of the Roman occupiers. Uh, and yet Jesus shows him this grace, shows him this kindness, and even on his behalf administers a rebuke to Israel and its unbelief. Well, then the last miracle that we see here is in verse 14. Uh, In Capernaum there, Jesus entered Peter's house, saw his mother, Peter's mother-in-law, lying sick with a fever. Now, Rome's Rome's strictures against the marriage uh, of clergy uh, and the life of celibacy, the fact is that was that Peter was married. Matthew speaks here of his mother-in-law, and in fact, in 1 Corinthians 9, uh, I believe verse 6, Paul says that uh, he with the other apostles has the right to, to marry, to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of Jesus, and Cephas, that is Peter. He refers to Peter's wife. Peter was, in fact, a married man, whom Rome claims as their first Pope, but Peter was married. And his mother-in-law here, in this case, happened to have a fever. And in verse 15, Jesus touched her hand, and the fever left her. And as evidence of that, she was able to get up and begin to wait on him uh, as a proof that she was completely healed. There were no lingering effects. She was uh, now whole and well and able to, uh, to attend to Jesus. So verse 16, that evening there in Capernaum, they, the, the crowds brought to him many uh, who were demon-possessed. He cast out spirits with a word, healed those who were sick. Again, in fulfillment of the Old Testament, as Matthew is so fond of quoting Old Testament Scripture, verse 17, this was fulfilled 
to be fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Now, that's from Isaiah 53, which you're probably familiar with as an Old Testament passage, very vividly and graphically describes Christ's suffering and his death. And certainly uh, the reference to illnesses and diseases is appropriate, but how would Jesus do that? How, were, how did he bear illness? How did he bear our diseases? Well, ultimately, he bore them through his death on the cross. I mean, we, we never read in the Gospels of Jesus being ill. Now, maybe he was. lived in a fallen world. He was human. But we never read of Jesus being ill. But ultimately, that's not how he bore our diseases. That's not how he carried our illnesses. He did it when he was on the cross. And the healing that he brings ultimately is not temporary, although in these cases he was glad to bring temporary healing for their sake, temporary because they ultimately would die, but to alleviate suffering because the kingdom of God has come. And it's not merely a forgiveness of sins, though praise God it's that, but it also brings the relief of human suffering from the effects of sin and the effects that go along with living in a a sinful and fallen world. And so Jesus ultimately bore our diseases, bore our illnesses by his death on the cross. And the healing that he brings is ultimately resurrection. It's ultimately complete freedom from sin. Not only its guilt, but its misery. And that's, the, that's what we anticipate as we look forward to the new heavens and the new earth, the completion of this work of redemption. is a place where not only sin, but the effects, the misery, the estate of misery into which sin brings us is gone. And as the kingdom of heaven is at hand, Jesus preaches the truth of the gospel on the one hand, but he also shows that the kingdom brings relief from the misery of sin on the other. Our final hymn speaks to this relief. It's uh, one I think you've heard of, hymn number 195, Joy to the World. Typically think of it as a Christmas carol, and it is. It speaks of the joy that the Lord has come, but it's about more than that. It's about the effects of Jesus coming. It, conclu- or it, it carries on in verse 3 with, this, with these words, No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. Remember the curse, Genesis 3, instead of the fruit, the thorns will grow up. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. You see, when the kingdom comes, it preaches forgiveness of sins, yes, but it also preaches alleviation of misery, the relief of this suffering. And Jesus, certainly by his divine power, demonstrated that in an amazing way. And the apostles, by the power Christ gave them, demonstrated that in the book of Acts. But you know, ever since then, even without miraculous power, part of the church's mission in expanding the kingdom certainly is to preach the gospel of God's grace and our forgiveness of sin. But it has always been accompanied by the effort to relieve human misery as we encounter it. From the early days of the church when the Christians took in Roman babies cast off, bound in the the junkyards and the dumps by those who have rejected them, uh, through the history of the church relieving suffering to the present day with with, uh, 
ministries like Bethany Christian Services and uh, crisis pregnancy centers, and certainly many other forms of relieving suffering. How many hospitals have been started in the name of Christ to relieve human misery? Uh, How many schools have been begun to relieve illiteracy, to teach people to be able to read the Bible? Neiman universities and colleges started in the name of Christ to equip and train his people to serve him and fulfill their callings in the world. Not just the days of Jesus, but ever since. The church, in expanding the kingdom, both within the walls of the church and outside the walls of the church and the community, has always sought to bring not only the forgiveness of the gospel, but the mercy of the gospel to those who are suffering, to those who are made in the image of Christ, made in the image of God. Obviously, with the hope that they might embrace the truth of the gospel as well as experience its benefits. But people made in the image of God are worthy of helping whether they come to Christ or not, simply because they are fellow creatures made in the image of God. And so the church has always done that wherever it's encountered the misery of sin, as the words of the hymn say, as far as the curse is found. And so as a church, we want to proclaim the good news of forgiveness of sins, and we want to embody the good news by seeking to relieve the misery that sin brings, whatever form that takes, in the life of those around us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the power of the gospel. Thank you, Father, for the righteousness that is ours in Christ. But, Lord, we don't need to look very far before we see suffering around us. And, Father, I pray that you would give us the eyes and the compassion of Jesus, though we may not have his miraculous power. Certainly, Lord, we have his love and we have the gospel and we are citizens of the kingdom. Uh, Give us grace, Lord, individually, as families, as a church, as a denomination, to do what we can to bring relief to those suffering from the misery of sin. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.